Hello, dear listeners. You are tuned in to Beginnings, a podcast of book readings written and read by Cecily Riley. Episode 1, The First Pages of The Chess Player, published by hawkwoodbooks.co.uk in 2017. We were breaking in a new girl, and she was dreadfully shy. We all had our idiosyncrasies, but she seemed downright out of place. As we watched her trying to hide behind a rack of costumes, we wondered whatever had possessed Mrs. Huffington to take her on. She was pretty enough, with her pale skin and big dark eyes, but she bore a perpetual look of disappointment. Mrs. Huff, as we called her, though not to her face, on account of permanent panting from obesity, was the creative director of our shows. Little Mary was currently having a disagreement with her costume, swearing under her breath. Just as we were about to dare each other to speak to her, Mrs. Huff barged in the dressing room, nearly rolling down the dreaded stairs that led to the stage. She checked everyone lecturing in that firm but fair tone of hers, as we all knew the gospel. Why aren't you ready? I wonder what I pay you for. This place will be the end of me. Get into costume already. None of us bothered to answer and went about our business of getting ready for that night's performance. As I was putting on the cone-shaped dress and hat meant to make me look like a rook in the chessboard game-themed tableau opening the show, I watched Mrs. Huff help little Mary with her night costume. The whole thing was a rather laughable affair, but it left nothing to the imagination about our anatomy, which was what costumers were paying for. Maybe Mary was a relative of Mrs. Huff's, and she was supposed to learn the ropes down in London how to become a cabaret showgirl. It was a rather strange idea to send such an innocent soul to the middle of the big city, to be hired in the only fully nude review in town. Or maybe her innocent exterior was a charade, hiding a more daring character. I doubted it. The costumes were always devised to be thoroughly revealing, if any were worn at all, to give our gentlemen every penny worth. Another of Mrs. Huff's Gospels. Most nights, the gentlemen got a lot more than they'd paid for, but more about that later. As a consequence of that gospel, my towering costume was entirely transparent, except for the hat with crenellations, and I wore nothing underneath it. One might be shocked by that kind of profession, but one does get accustomed to so many things so quickly these days, like electric lights and motor cars. I climbed the stairs as quickly as I could, trying not to hit my hat against the roof again. Our costume lady had it in for me already due to the toga on fire incident. Long story. Little Mary was right behind me. The bluish lighting and the aging steps made this nightly chase quite perilous. 
Just like all the girls in our number, she was also entirely naked, except for the makeshift horse around her waist, with her lovely dark hair tied in a long ponytail. Her horse had none, for obvious reasons. In front of me, running down the narrow corridor to reach the stage on time, was the queen, played by Ethel. A strange choice, since she hailed from the dingier parts of Essex, with an ostentatious crown and a translucent dress. There was also a bishop, with a pom-pom, at the end of her garlic-shaped hat, played by Jane. She had come down from Birmingham the year before, and was more than happy to be threatened by excommunication in the local church's pamphlets. Of the 8 million inhabitants of London, 14% were unemployed, as in 1.1 million people, men mostly, which meant we all counted ourselves lucky to work for the ingenious, if tough, Mrs. Huffington. She had a husband, but we rarely saw him. If the rumors were to be believed, he was quite happy staying in the shadow of his famous wife. Unlike Helen, one of our girls, who had fled the comforts of her aristocratic family in Kensington to seek the thrills of real life, as she often put it. But just like the rest of us, she was relieved to be steadily employed. To her, it was mostly a joke, until the right one came along. For others, it was of vital importance, as many of the girls were the sole bread earners. We kept a wary eye out for men interested in girls like us, dancers mistaken for prostitutes. The difference might have been slim for some of the girls, but most of us aspired to something more and had steady boyfriends. The first tableau that night was the chessboard with a rook, me, a knight, Mary, a bishop, Jane, a pawn, Helen, a queen, Ethel, and a king, Rachel. The latter was a black-haired beauty with mysterious origins. It is fair to say that there was no love lost between us, but we got along, on stage at least, for the sake of the company. The next number was the Trojan horse dance, which comprised Norma from America, Tina and Greta from Germany, and Joanna from Sussex, whom we had nicknamed the Milkmaid because of her big baby blue eyes and golden blonde hair. They hid in a great transparent structure made to look like a horse, then streamed out of it, their Greek silks flowing behind them. The third number saw the five of us dancing to a popular sailor song dressed as peasant girls with short skirts and white blouses tied under our breasts and flowers in our hair. The fourth tableau was a medieval feast where all the men had been lost in battle, apparently, because the four girls in strange medieval garments were dining alone yet displaying their charms for all to see. The last number was a choreographed war between the Romans and the Greeks, all of whom were scantily clad females with red or white togas and sandals. This brought both groups together on stage and made a crowded performing area, so we had to be rather careful with our swords and spears. In the end, all that was left on stage was a motionless spread of tits and legs. 
As if the rest of the show wasn't enough of a dash, we had a quick costume change for the curtain call, with a dresser helping us in the wings. Needless to say, the audience was mostly male, although some drunk women accompanied their gentlemen companions and regularly mocked our tableaus, which made us angry and the men less well inclined towards us. There was also the other type of women, much more discreet, much more refined, who, like the men, came to see our young and firm bodies shimmer in the limelight, sometimes even taking one of us home. We were fearless as dancers and as women, so it didn't seem particularly daring to us to go on stage without clothes. Whilst we were not prostitutes, some of us happily mingled with the patrons after the show once the band had switched to dancing music. Then the place stayed open as long as the bar kept selling champagne. It was on one of those days that the girls had come to fetch me to meet Mary pushing and pulling me up the stairs to the stage where the breaking-in rehearsal was taking place. They had seemed to be waiting for my verdict regarding the new recruit. They stared at Mary with amusement and at me with apprehension. The whole ritual made me rather uncomfortable, so I put an end to it as gracefully as I could. I went over to her and hugged her for all to see, whispering, Welcome to the jungle. In her ear, giving her a wink as we parted. I noticed Mrs. Hoff's approving glance as I made my way back to the dressing room, and Mary returned to her rehearsal. I remember the night little Mary started, because several things quite out of the ordinary happened. Little did I know that the spark lit within my heart and soul by those events would make my life so much more than just a dancer. They have made me a deadly investigator and a witness of our times. But I digress. If you want to know more, feel free to buy the books in the link. Mm -hmm.